0: Welcome to the Communicating Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colum Haney, a dentist with a special interest in all aspects of communication in healthcare. Each episode, I'll be having a conversation with inspirational practitioners to discover how they communicate effectively, creating exceptional relationships with their patients and fulfilling, rewarding careers. For clinicians who care, let's find out how the experts do it. My guest today on the Communicating Health podcast is Dr. Ramesh Balasubramaniam. Ramesh is an oral medicine specialist in the private and public sector, practice owner, international speaker, author, and is involved in teaching and research at the UWA School of Dentistry. Ramesh is known for telling it as it is. In today's conversation, we discuss where communication fits into his work, before getting into topics that often cause great confusion among dental professionals, TMD, orofacial pain, parafunction and more. As always, we start with a bio and insight into Ramesh's journey to becoming a specialist. Okay, Ramesh, we will get straight into it. Thank you very much for joining me today. I have been trying to catch up with you for a little while. I don't know if you remember as we flew across from Perth to Adelaide to the Australian Dental Congress where we were both speaking in one form or another. I I put it to you that I might be chasing you up to come as a guest on the podcast we have finally put things together and so we'll talk a little bit about your career what you do and then get into a few issues that arise i think from for a lot of gps in terms of the crossover between communication and issues such as tmd power function, treatments etc cetera, etc cetera, all those controversial topics that you i think have a, a bit of an affinity for talking about
1: thank you colin for the invitation to speak on this podcast Yes, we did um, have that chat on the plane. I remember it vividly on the way to the ADA Congress. And um, ironically, at the Congress, I was invited to speak on controversies with temporomandibular disorders. Yes, it was fun. There were lots of people there and I trust it went down reasonably well.
0: Um, Yeah, I was in in the audience. I think you had one of those large lecture theatres that did, did go down very well from what I could see. Oh, good. Thank you. With regards to my career, uh, I'm an oral
1: medicine specialist. Much of my practice is limited to orofacial pain, and um, okay. I do some dental sleep medicine as well, primarily oral appliances, snoring and sleep apnea.
0: Yeah, a lot of listeners will know you. You're very well known and recognize you're an international speaker. You're a co-author of probably the most current and comprehensive set of textbooks on oral medicine. You're one of these people. I'm. I'm reading a little bit of science fiction at the moment. Now that I've got some time in my hands, you seem to exist in a parallel universe to everybody else, where there's <laughs> 30 hours in your day, where there's 24 hours for the rest of us. You're a practice owner and multiple satellite practices and a central practice. I think. Yes. As I said, international speaker, author. Been corresponding recently. You've also added a new skill to your armory. You and I are both homeschooling as well in this COVID time as well. I think, I think of them all, uh, from what you said, that's probably the most challenging of them all at the moment. Yes. Um, that wasn't
1: part of the deal. You know? <laughs> yes. yes. The, the school said they were going to take care of them and, it, you know, spit them out at the age of 17, 18, and then I get to take over.
0: I didn't plan for this column and I don't know how this is going to go. I think we're in the same boat and I think we can both understand why all these memes are going around now about parents tearing their hair out and saying, I really appreciate the job the teachers do now.
1: Yes, the one that's going around where it says, you know, now you you find out the teacher wasn't the problem is a good one.
0: And in terms of a, a little bit more about your background and your bio where did your journey into dentistry start like from high school did you always want to be a dentist or how did that come about? Yeah so,
1: so I was um actually it was in maths I was sitting next to a, um, a mate of mine and um, we were both sitting in maths in year 11 and having a chat and you know sort of bouncing ideas what would you do etc and my mate said oh have you thought about dentistry and I, I vividly remember him saying that they only take 20 people into this course and you have to be one of 20 individuals who, and after your first year of university. And I said, well, I hadn't thought about dentistry. Sounds interesting. So what I did was I went off and observed a family friend who was a dentist, um, Dr. Harry, who's in Victoria Park here in Perth, and then you know got me interested in um, second-year science. I got accepted into dentistry. By the way, I came back and finished my science degree as well and um, yeah I graduated in 2000.
0: Okay so that that one conversation was quite a pivotal moment in your life then. Yes it was interesting because um, my mate um, went on to
1: become a geologist and ironically he <laughs> then went on and got involved in events management and he left me behind in dentistry somewhere along the line.
0: Yes yeah well your career path through dentistry. Then, uh, did you? I presume did you work in practice for a bit, and then
1: yeah. What, so what? yeah. So I, I worked um, a couple of years, two and a half years in general dental practice. It was probably around third year, third year ish. I, I sort of felt um, the mechanics, the the, the hand skill parts sort of dentistry didn't appeal to me as much anymore, and I started getting an, a real interest in the diagnostic side of things, you know, the the mucosal lesions and the bony pathology, the radiology side of things, and then I had a few lectures on orofacial pain, and I thought to myself, wow, this is a fascinating area of dentistry. What was most fascinating, and I won't mention names here, but we had two different lecturers who had two very opposing views on how to approach the subject, And the one theme that came out of it at the end of it all was the students were confused. (laughs) And I found that very fascinating. Um, What I failed to realize at the time, I sort of thought to myself, one of them must be right. But I think very quickly, as soon as I started my postgraduate training, I realized there was actually a continuum rather than a right and a wrong. And so, yeah, that's how I got into the interest, my, my interest of orofacial pain and then, of course, moving on to tertiary education and graduate studies, etc.,
0: Yeah, and I think that that's part of the reason I wanted to speak to you about this area. Certainly, I can vividly remember from my student days that confusion, and pretty much I would say everybody in our year, that confusion, speaking to other people around TMJ, jaw relationships, moving on into what used to be called atypical facial pain, now non-odontogenic facial pain, if I'm getting the terminology right. And yeah, certainly nothing more taken away from me other than confusion. (laughs) Yes. And so uh, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit later on from the perspective of uh, trying to enlighten GDPs like myself. Uh, And as you said, taking into account that there may be no right or wrong answer, that the aspect of a, a continuum is certainly a really good analogy, a good way of thinking about it, I think. You Decided to go overseas to study. For what reason? So,
1: so at the time when I was interested in um, specifically pain, orofacial pain, I looked around. I looked around in Western Australia. Now we're talking about 1998, 99, you know, 2000. Oral medicine was not even recognised as a specialty in Western yeah. Australia. This is going back to when we had regional state boards, and at some point. They recognized oral medicine in Victoria and South Australia and New South Wales, but I can specifically tell you oral medicine was not recognized. So I started looking around at the training orofacial pain, and there wasn't much around, nothing formal. There were prosthodontic um, programs that were dabbling in orofacial pain, a um, little yes. bit of oral medicine, et etc. So what I did in my search to 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 learn more about orofacial pain, I, I looked around at the various university programs available internationally, and a lot of the authors at the time, those who were at the forefront of the field, were from the USA. So I decided to go on a and things you could do back then when we when we didn't have to homeschool. I jumped on a plane <laughs> and I, I went to. These are the places I visited. I visited the University of Kentucky, which is where I ultimately ended up. I went to Minnesota. I also spent some time at Newark, New Jersey at the time, and now it's no longer around. It's Rutgers University. I also looked at the program at Buffalo. I looked at UCLA. Then I briefly looked at University of Southern California. There were all these various options and the reason why I ended up at the University of Kentucky, obviously, I was accepted. That was one main reason I ended up there. Um, the, the, but the reason I applied to University of Kentucky was because Jeffrey Okerson, who's authored a couple of textbooks, ran the program, and he was just the loveliest guy, amazing educator, very approachable, a, a very pleasant educational experience while I was in Kentucky.
0: Yeah, and he's, I suppose, one of those names that most dentists would know, would have heard of. He seems to be a leading authority in in this field. So, yeah, you obviously landed in a good spot there.
1: Yes. Yeah, very fortunate to have trained with him. Um, And my eyes opened up when I went to visit. I was just surprised to see that the first thing that I noticed was no one in that clinic was using a high-speed (laughs) okay and that really appealed to me i was thinking, wow (laughs) (laughs) was interesting i saw a compressor there i don't know what they used it for perhaps um,
0: trimming splints or something like
1: that maybe after hours dentistry but nothing that was going on during the clinical hours
0: okay you knew that you were set you'd found home there
1: (laughs) yeah yeah without yeah I, i didn't hear that drill and and then it was also Odd that he had a psychologist and a physiotherapist and oh, okay. all on board in the same clinic. It was a very medical model within the dental school if that made sense. Yeah. It was just like, wow, this is very different.
0: Yeah, and something I want to ask you a little bit about later on, the biopsychosocial model of care that people talk a little bit more and more about now, uh, is that what you're alluding to there? Was that that's what was going on there? Uh, uh, absolutely. Prior to arriving in Kentucky
1: and, or as well as these other institutions where I went, you know, went to have a look, and I did read up a fair bit. I mean, the idea that when you read something on text uh, in a textbook or anywhere really for that matter, but uh, manuscripts, et cetera, until you see it in action, you don't have a true appreciation for it. You know, you almost have to marry the two. Um, this was a clinic that was uh, this is how it ran so when a patient showed up they literally had an hour to see the trainee this the, what they call residents at the time so you'd go in see the resident now this was then followed by an interview with the clinical psychology resident and there was okay. a physiotherapist in the back room and then you'd all come together and have a discussion about the case and what seemed to be a simple disc displacement a clicky lock, locking jaw was You know, well, at the time, you sort of felt, well, the patient isn't too bad. You know, physically, this isn't too bad, but emotionally, the patient was terribly distressed. But when you had the input from the 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 psychology side of things, it all came together that the patient had a really, really difficult backstory that I was not privy to. I I just because I went into feel the jaw, went in to check the click and asked very superficial yeah. questions around the psychosocial stuff, Whilst the clinical psychology re- resident went in and asked some very intimate questions. And when we, when we married the two, what we started seeing is we were really connecting with patients and getting incredible results in a truly interdisciplinary setting.
0: Yeah, that were those patients coming in, were they ones that had been seen in the community by GDPs or even specialists outside, and then they were the ones that hadn't resolved and were coming in the more tricky ones, or were they just normal, anyone could walk in?
1: Uh, the, the answer is they were definitely the trickier ones. This is a tertiary yeah. care type thing where the patient's probably been to a dentist or their medical general practitioner back and forth, a couple of dentists. I mean, there were patients who had seen had seen a dozen dentists and have had yeah. a dozen splints. So it was, um, you know, they're, they're definitely the more challenging cases. And I, I guess it's a reasonable question because, if you, you know, it's very much the, the types of cases I see in private practice. Yes, I do see some challenging cases in private practice. However, a lot of the challenging cases that I see come to the E block at the Oral Health Centre, Western Australia, and the the cases I see there with long term chronic pain extremely challenging.
0: It must have been quite rewarding and enlightening to see how that multidisciplinary approach worked. I suppose with a greater degree of success than they'd previously experienced.
1: Yes, it was definitely rewarding, and I think the big word here is humbling. Um, I was was also in my early twenties, and you've read a lot of books, and you know you're pretty sure you've read enough books that you felt confident you understood how the joint works and what the muscles of mastication were and the cytokines and you know I sort of knew all that stuff but when you like I said when you see it in action and and you see patients responding to a biopsychosocial model of care it is is truly humbling that in fact I'm merely seeing the, the tip of the iceberg and there's just so much more to this patient so much more to oral medicine than what we see in our little three by three consultation yeah. room
0: moving into the, the the overarching theme of the podcast which is communication and in terms of the importance of communication in oral medicine what broad areas in your day-to-day work in your speciality do you find that communication is a key skill
1: communication is everything in oral medicine absolutely critical okay I'm sitting now in what I call it our consultation room. Unlike a typical dental setting, we we keep our treatment room where the chair is, um, and we don't have a true dental setup, and the consultation room completely separate. You can't see this, so I'll describe it to you. I've got a, a consultation desk which is round with rounded edges, so the patient's actually sitting closer to me without that barrier to communication. So it sort of lends itself yep. to an openness the consultation the, um, the history side of things the patient's being comfortable enough to tell you the re- the version that you need to hear so you can give them the best care is is critical as part of your oral medicine or facial pain training you learn history taking you learn different styles, et cetera. And funny enough, the style that i previously used, and, con- and, and I continue to use bits of it, has evolved with experience. And so, yeah, very, very critical. In fact, it'll be hard to become a oral medicine specialist or at least be successful as a oral medicine specialist if you don't like communicating or don't enjoy okay. communicating.
0: So, did you receive any formal training in things like you, you've obviously talked about some of the non-verbal aspects of communication, like the way your surgery is set up, a way, a consult room and a treatment room, and even the the setup in that consult room, trying to reduce the barrier between the patient and yourself, which is all really critical things that people people think communication is just the talking. But about two thirds of communication is actually everything else that goes on around that. And you've obviously given some thought to that. Did you receive any formal teaching in that, or is it picked up on the job, or is it just part of your awareness and personality? Or what? What do you think about that?
1: My training programs I went to a clinical training program. So you, some of the best communicators in dentistry were people like Jeffrey Oakerson and Donald Felace, You know, just watching different styles, but equally effective and so there was a lot of on you know training on the job some of these professors i guess might have had formal training maybe they went off and did a course but it was very much a style that they developed so the training i had was primarily learning on the job i I tell you what um, a pain patient will very quickly tell you if you miscommunicated with them because you know they, they they can get
0: upset and I suppose you, you'll you get that feeling as well that you're not tuning in to them, which is a critical part of the whole process, I suppose.
1: Yeah, well, you, you usually get this column, you know, you get the folded yeah. arms, Yeah. the glazed yeah. look, sometimes you get the, they're on the edge um, of the seats, etc. Yeah, you, you certainly will find out very, very quickly <laughs> if it's
0: going as planned or not. And what, in terms of are there any consistent tricky aspects or tripwires in terms of responses from patients or, or processes in the field of oral medicine from the communication point of view?
1: Yeah, those who are involved in oral medicine would agree with me. We see a fair share of patients who tend to be upset. They're not happy. Um, this, don't forget this is very much a non-elective type practice. No one's excited that they've got a leukoplakia. No one's okay. excited that their jaw's locked. So I often tell my reception staff this and and myself, when a patient's upset with you, you, you just can't take it personally. It's, it's easier said than done. I love to tell you that, oh, yeah, patient's upset with me. No worries, moving on. You know, it, it does bother me. There's a little bit of rumination there and all of that. So that's certainly a tip, you know, that the patient – with the locked jaw, who's had a really tough childhood, the patient has come in and they're really worried about this here. They think it's cancer. You, you've got to cut them some slack. Most people, most people, not everybody, but most people will gradually come around with the appropriate com- communication. You'll see the guard drop, patient's body language changes, your body language changes as well. To extend on that, one of the things we do, just the style of practice I have, if I have a um, one of my dental colleagues see a patient, And they've done a review to see how the patient's going with their pain. And we have a little meeting and the feedback might be, oh, patient's doing terrible, terrible, no improvement, 0% improvement, just going really badly. She's very upset and angry. No matter how the patient feels on the day, whether they're doing fantastically well or not, I come in with a smile. Because unlike a lot of dentistry, there are very, very few patients in oral medicine that you can really fix you know, so you don't fix them, you get them better. Even temporal mandibular disorders fluctuate, during periods of stress, fluctuate and aggravate. So I tend to anticipate that at some point, even when a patient says, wow, you know, things have gone really well and they're over the moon, I tend to say, thank you very much. You know, I really appreciate you saying that. And so wonderful for me here hear this, but can I just caution you that the nature of this thing at some point is going to bother you because in the early days I used to go, yep, that was me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then very quickly you're humbled. <laughs> you know, okay. you yep. Yep. You're as good as your last patient, Colin. You're as good as your yes. last patient.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think every dentist can relate to that in some way or another. So it sounds like what you're saying, there's a fair degree of expectation management. Yes, Yes,
1: very much so. That's a discussion you have at the first appointment. What, you know, for example, um, a patient comes in with trigeminal neuralgia. You can't promise them you're going to fix them. The patient comes in with a um, persistent facial pain. Patient comes in with you know neuropathic pain of some sort, burning mouth syndrome. Yeah, very very early on. You have to set the expectations. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I don't set the expectation low. What I do is I yeah. set it at a reasonable Well, say so you know what, you're going to have quality of life. Yes, this is going to be very manageable. But if you're looking for a fix, that's a big call.
0: There's a lot of talk about in medicine, a, a placebo effect of being positive and well, even things like what you've said, even walking into the room with a smile and, and appearing confident and speaking with a degree of authority and all those things will create a, a placebo effect but as well as that you have to be on one hand being upbeat on the other hand managing the expectations i suppose can be a tricky tightrope to walk sometimes absolutely yes yeah, so this was an, this remains in the
1: area of interest of mine a lecture titled placebo dentics um... okay the reason I came up with that lecture title was, you know, every now and again I'll have a colleague who call me to just let me know how well they're done with their particular patient with this brand new designed appliance, and patients just over the moon. And they usually give it a fancy name, or they'll tell me a story about how they adjusted the occlusion of a patient and did a really good adjustment, and hence the patient's better now. I do not. Firstly, I don't tell anybody. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare tell a patient or referrer, um, anybody. Hey, guess what? That was placebo. What I do is I sure. tend to keep it in context and um, explain to the clinician. You know, in fact, if you look at the natural history of temporomandibular disorders, most patients get better. Okay, so what happens yeah. is there's this confirmational bias, and confirmational bias doesn't discriminate. It happens to me as well. It happens to lay people who show up at naturopaths or happen to take a vitamin of some sort, and then they feel better. And when they feel better, the first thing they do is they look at associations. They look around and say, wow, when I went and had that done, this happened. Yep, or I stopped
0: using fluoride toothpaste or something like that.
1: That's right, and then everything else happened. And, you know, as soon as I got my amalgams out, um, yes. Although there was a significant rise in mercury levels in the blood, oh, wow, it was just perfect after that. So just human nature, we tend to do that. And and if you – you know, I, I, sometimes patients will challenge me on that, and I said, on that day, what color shoes were you wearing? And they said, um, I always wear these black shoes. I said, how do you know it was in black shoes? Yes. You know, and I sort of – you know, and my point being you've got okay. to be really careful, you know, trying to assume that because – you happen to take that particular tablet that was you know a, a root of a particular tree that was the reason why your neuralgia is gone the, yeah. the tendencies neuralgia tend to go to a period of remission and it's gone the unfortunate thing is that when it comes back I'm not sure if the root's going to work again eventually it'll work because that's the tendency of neuralgia it'll go away mm-hmm. again. Yeah. so I tend to have that discussion with both patients as well as clinicians and I think it's really important when a patient gets better we respect the fact that there are other non-specific effects that have played a significant role a role
0: and often unmeasurable you can't measure it yeah and I suppose that plays into the the next part of the discussion in into looking talking a little bit about TMD temperament mandibular disorders and and parafunction. And that, what you mentioned earlier on, there's a broad range of treatments, a broad range of schools of thought. In terms of just for a GdP to be a bit more clinical about it, what sort of basic screening would you recommend a GdP do as part of an 11 or an 12 which for non-Australian audiences is your basic new patient or six monthly regular patient examination?
1: Yeah, good question. So there's an excellent TMD screener. As part of the DCTMD, it's called Diagnostic Criteria for Temporal Mandibular Disorders. Now, this is freely available. You can Google it, DCTMD, look up TMD screener. It's a short questionnaire, and it answers a few questions about pain and function. Basically, the questions revolve around jaw pain and function, and you can score it. It takes all of 30 seconds, and it's been shown to be reliable, so it's a good thing to use. If that's what I recommend. I think it's important to ask these very simple questions. You'd be surprised the number of patients I see who are absolutely convinced that it was orthodontics that caused their um jaw dysfunction, um absolutely convinced that. it's the dentist you know it was crown that was put in or something like that yeah yeah, the number of times i hear things like oh you know i start asking so what do you think caused and they say oh it was my wisdom teeth extraction so well well that's a reasonable thing yeah it obviously might have been traumatic or yes it was and i say, so so when did it when did you get your wisdom teeth extracted and they'll they'll cite a date was 20 years prior to the event you know so i think having um the TMJ screener uh, in, and you know documenting what the patient said was is critical. Now, to just elaborate, or just to extend on that, um, once a patient has scores on the TMJ screen and requires a full comprehensive examination, the DC TMD also has that as part of it.
0: Okay Now this is probably I'm speaking personally, and I'm probably speaking on behalf of a lot of GDPs. It's one of those things, I suppose I sometimes have a feeling you open up a can of worms and you don't really know how to deal with it. You're letting something, the genie out of the bottle, and we don't know what to do with that information if something comes up in in that screening. Because uh, going back to my experience in undergrad, it was just completely mystifying. We spent a whole year, one unit, and as I said, we came out of it all scratching heads knowing that it's a damn confusing topic if that's the only thing you take away from it. So the
1: answer to that is yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's confusing. And the problem, um, you're you're right. So you've got a positive answer. What do you do? How do you approach it? I think, as I mentioned, you'd want to do a thorough history and examination. And I think this is where the um, biopsychosocial model comes into it. You want to ask questions. You you really want to put your handpiece down, take off your mask, take off your gloves and almost have a very medical model to this. Um, you want to sit the patient down, ask them about location, intensity, frequency, what makes it worse, better, etc. And most importantly, you want to spend a fair bit of time asking them about their psychological and social history. This is important. This is actually a very important aspect of the um, history.
0: Would you say for
1: GDPs that's uh, appropriate? Um, it's all about training. Um, believe me, uh, even... As recently as today, um, I was just doing a, with COVID, I was doing one of these teleconferences and I had to ask a patient about stress and it isn't comfortable. It's You're not asking them about teeth whitening, you know what I mean? You're asking them about yeah. details they might not feel comfortable sharing with you. You're asking them about sleep and issues with sleep. You're asking about diet and alcohol use and drug use. You're asking them about their self-esteem. Um, you're asking about anxiety and depression, secondary gains and this your home life. Yeah, it's not comfortable. But once you get training and if you ask the right questions and you get the right answers, it will point you in the right direction. Now, I'm going to make a couple of very important points about a, about a psychosocial history. You should never ask the question if you're not prepared for the answer. Yeah. Okay. So... For example, if I was to ask the question, does this pain make you flat? And the patient goes on and says, oh, you know, terribly depressed. Sometimes I feel so depressed. And it goes on and on and on. And eventually you're starting to see some hallmarks of suicidal ideation. And you're now backtracking because you've got a scale and cleaned you next. Yeah. yeah. Conversation's gone on for half an hour and you're going, oh, boy, where's this going, where's this going, then perhaps you shouldn't have asked that question in the first place. The second little pearl here is if you're asking a question and the patient's now told you, yes, I feel flat, I'm teary, I'm fatigued all day, and with some basic training in mental health, um, you're sort of picking up, oh, the patient might be, you know, having maybe depression, maybe they're feeling a little bit flat, something's not quite right. There's absolutely no, um, there's no need to push that and ask questions about things like, please tell me about your depression, what triggered your depression? you know, what perpetuates a depression? Because what are you going to do with that information? Yeah. You're, you're yeah. This is now practicing outside the scope of dentistry, as far as I see it. I think your job's now, okay, we've got a we've got a jaw pain issue. I'm going to try and manage that. And I've got this, this significant um, psychosocial issue. I'm going to get in touch with your psychologist or psychiatrist and general medical practitioner and get them to get the help there.
0: Okay. And I suppose personally, again, in answer to your first question, pearl there about not asking the question unless you're prepared for the answer personally speaking i'm not equipped to deal with 90 percent of you know significant psychosocial answers that somebody might give so that therefore i suppose you tend to shy away from asking the question as a gdp
1: yes um, which is fair uh, to to reassure you the dctmd was primarily put together for dentists and a significant portion of the DCTMD has got what we call access to the psycho- psychological, the psychosocial aspects of TMD. I think we're moving into a realm where it's safe to say that unless you're asking these questions, you, you shouldn't really get into treating temperamental disorders as an entity. So yeah. I think the better solution is to get comfortable asking the question because the, the, the patients will – it's like – um. You're normalizing it, you know. So when a patient comes and sees me, I said I actually tell them, you know, you know, with temperamental disorders, often it can be triggered by stress, it can be made worse by stress and poor sleep, etc. So and then I go into it. I'm almost saying that, hey, you know, as part of this, rather than coming the other way and saying oh do you think you're stressed because that would imply oh it's all in your head and and yeah. that's the quickest way to lose the patient's confidence as a psychiatry colleague of mine says you know you can only feel pain if it's in your head but if a patient <laughs> yes. misunderstands yeah but if a patient misunderstands you and thinks you're, you're suggesting they're imagining their pain you'd lose them very quickly
0: yeah I suppose for me, the way I approach it, if there's certain things come up in that screening, I treat it a bit like that fourth canal in the upper first molar that I can't find or I can't access or I can see is branching. It, it's out of my scope, out of out of what I know what I can do. And that's why we thankfully, uh, people like you uh, are close at hand, certainly for, for us in, in metropolitan practice. I suppose it's, it's knowing the limits and not, not going down the rabbit hole too much unless you're very comfortable going down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess the, a, a good analogy, if that tooth that you just referred to came to me, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I wouldn't yes. know what to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't done a root canal for a very, very long time. But absolutely, you want to take on things that you feel comfortable with. And if you do do it enough times and you see enough TMD, I'll give you a classic example. There's actually really good evidence that as part of your TMD, TMD assessment, You should ask for other symptoms and bodily pains. Now, if a patient was to mark out various pains they have in various areas of the body, the more areas they have pain, the more medical conditions, the more um, symptoms they have, the less likely they're going to get better. So, you know, that's one Really good trick, you know. If the patient, if you look at their medical history and on that list they've got fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and things like um, vulvodynia and pelvic pain and burning mouth, those all red flags that the patient has for a better word a hypersensitive system, and that I yeah. consider that accessory canal that you should shoot off to the endodontist. You really don't want. Yeah. I mean, and I mean this with all due respect to the patient, because this, there's actually um, some interesting data that the, the, this is not a psychological thing that they're complaining of all these non-specific pains that no one can find an answer for. And there's actually um, an underlying pathophysiology there.
0: Yeah. And that leads us into the conversation about the controversy and the diverging opinions around something like TMD. Why, why do you think that exists? Uh, is it going back to that confirmation bias where one person spends a life you know setting up the ideal ideal in air quotes occlusion and it works for them? Other people get really good at appliances and it get, and it works for them, and other people do Botox and it works for them, and each one has their bias confirmed and then has that their own school of thought on it. is Is that a, a correct way of looking at it?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. You know, one could even one could argue whether orofacial pain, temporal mandibular disorders, belongs in dentistry in the first place. Can you imagine if there were no, you know, teeth didn't exist and had nothing to do with teeth, the teeth were not there, um, and we're dealing with a joint? Suddenly, it's a medical problem. In fact, with temporal mandibular disorders, as an entity, was described by the ENT surgeon in the first instance and so it has had evolved from dentists being medical doctors as well and slowly evolved into mainstream dentistry. I think you're right it goes back to the fact that we've got various tricks up our sleeves and things that work in our hands we consider as the thing that fixed the TMD and then we yes. go with that and that confirmational bias dentists um, tend to like we, we tend to like our our toys and our lights and and bits and pieces and when when it works we tell everybody in our training we spend a lot of time doing mechanical things we, we you know do, we tend to do a lot more than other areas of medicine and our light health and it's very much a doing art and there's a lot there's a fair bit of thinking but there's a lot more doing and so we tend to want to create a new appliance we come up with theories on on loading and and unloading etc we we go with that theory saying, oh, because of my, my specific device, the patient's gotten better. So I think there's a lot of that. We've got to be careful. Um, it's something that you see over the years with dentistry. Uh, you know, there was the occlusion model. You know, one of the things I tell the students, um, the dental students, and it's a trick question. In my very first lecture, I said, can, um, can someone define centric relation? And it's amazing. They're, they're all looking at me thinking, well, that was in PROS 101. This guy is obviously hasn't read PROS 101. And, you know, eventually a couple of students have put up their hand and and will tell you the answer they were given to memorize and regurgitate in November. And so I turned around and said, but I heard that, oh, really? I said, that's interesting that that's what you were told. I'm pretty sure it's anterior inferior. That's where the condyle needs to be in that CR And then I do this analogy where I tell them, okay, I want you to now put your jaw in CR, okay? So they'll all go off and try and roll their tongue back and bite down, and and you can see there's a slide. And now once you tilt your head to one side and bite down, are you in CR anymore? You know, and then I said, tilt the other side, drop your head back, and I I basically tell them that there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is just made up. But you know, the number of manuscripts and textbooks devoted to the ideal jaw position, it's just amazing because we were all looking for it. And and at the end of this discussion, I tell them by the end of the fourth year, if someone finds CR, you'd win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. You know? And and so that's an ongoing joke. And I think we need to let go of those idealistic models in dentistry you know where you read a textbook and everyone you know in dentistry we tend to follow gurus and weekend warrior type courses and 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 then we base our entire careers on concepts and i think dentistry would be well served to grow up from this and move away
0: yeah i think something particularly like tmd where there's so many factors coming into play. Of all aspects of dentistry, I think it's the one that's got, is so, we love, we all love the word multifactorial, but there's so many factors coming into play in TMD from what I can see, having done a little bit of research for this even.
1: Yeah, um, and that's a good point, Colm. Um, you probably know there's a big explosion of webinars and courses and conferences, maybe not now, given COVID, but with, with um, sleep medicine. Yeah. Suddenly, Every other dentist is getting involved in doing oral appliances and expanding kids, etc. for obstructive sleep apnea to prevent sleep apnea. Fixing airways
0: by yeah. orthodontics.
1: Yeah, orthodontics. Yeah. There's airway orthodontics and mm-hmm. airway prosthodontics. I've not come across the airway endodontist, but I'm sure no. that's around the corner. Maybe it's yeah. leaving the root canals without gutta perga, I don't know, there might be a role yeah. there somewhere. But mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 my, my word of caution here is there isn't this one silver bullet in medicine mm-hmm. and, and for that matter, dentistry. I just want to caution all our colleagues, you know, just be very careful. You saw what happened to occlusion and, and you know, I think that you've got to understand sleep medicine is extremely complex and you just simply can't go off and do a weekend course and suddenly start getting into this looking at anatomy on a comium CT and thinking, wow, that's a that's an obviously very, very small airway not considering the physiology of it all. Just, I, I just want to caution our colleagues, just be careful if you're trying to tie in that whole sleep thing with temperamental disorders, because it's much more complex than one thing.
0: Yeah. And look, that just makes sense. And, and it probably goes back to explaining that uh, spectrum of different treatments and methodologies that people espouse as being the, as you said, the silver bullet. Another thing that comes up that I've seen, which, which is quite sad as well, and um, particularly working in the UK where dentistry is more accessible and 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 free, I don't know whether you've seen this, the the crossover between dental pain and non-dental pain. I've seen people over the years with having, particularly in the upper quadrant seven, six, five, four, all root canaled and then all extracted in, in, in the chase for pain. And they, they finally turn up on your doorstep and the pain's still there. And they're they're asking you to root canal the, the number three, the canine. Do you see much of that here? I haven't seen much of it, I have to say, in Western Australia, but it is something I have seen over the years. But I've also seen patients who have begged me to root canal or take a tooth out and something hasn't been sitting right. And I've sat back and said, no, just hang on a second and looked at it again and, and then gone and palpated the muscles in the TMJ and they jump out of the chair. Is that something that exists?
1: It'll be hard
0: to get through a day without
1: seeing muscle pain, referring to teeth, without seeing um, neuropathic pain associated with teeth. We see this commonly. I think every dentist would be well served in reviewing the non-odontogenic causes of pain. Absolutely. Um, I've seen patients who've had every single tooth on a quarter root canal treated. I've seen a patient who's had every single tooth extracted in the search of yeah. for this pain. Yeah. The, the The problem with this particular pain complaint, and let's use the um, the terminology has just changed. There's just new new classification systems that's come out. Um, by the way, if anyone's interested, it's the International Classification of Oral-Facial Pain, and I believe it's called painful trigeminal neuropathy, and under that is these um, nerve pains and the old atypical odontalgia or atypical facial pain, that sort of thing, fall under this category. The, the challenge of these patients include, one, the pain sounds like a toothache, and the bigger challenge is you've got an extremely distressed patient. Yeah. And, you know, I've had patients beg me, literally beg me to let them have a tooth extracted. And and they do that because it is so painful. You know, it's just so painful. Yeah. They can't cope. And they're saying, come on, please, please, please. You know, I'm sure if this tooth is taken, I'll be fine. And I sort of said, but Mr. Smith, you know, we've, we've already taken out two in the past and and it just gets better for a couple of days, then it's back again. You know, and uh, he goes, but I'm sure this is it. And the other the other challenge on the side, you know, when a patient's complaining of a pain that sounds like a toothache, and the patient's been to two, three other dentists, and you're now the fourth dentist. And when the, when more dentists for a better word meddle with a particular area in the mouth, there's always gonna be itrogenic things that get yeah. thrown in. Now yeah. I tell my certainly I'm, I'm suspect I suspect my endodontic colleagues might not like this. I use this an analogy often. If you look at a tooth hard enough and long enough, it's always 0.1 millimeter short of the apex.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you
1: know, keep looking and you keep looking. I swear you'd see an overhang or an underhang. You see a shadow or um, a periapical radiolucency absolutely. on an upper molar. Yeah, yep. every marrow space looks like a lucency, you know, So, and, and with a desperate patient right next to you, and they're truly desperate, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're obsessed with it, they, their, whole, you know, their coping mechanisms are destroyed. You can't blame them for expressing that sort of what I call pain behaviour, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the other thing that's a challenge is in dental school, and I trust you agree with me here, Colm, um, we were very much – thought the, the me- biomedical model, you know, we, we we understood nociception very well because we yeah. this is what we did, we did toothaches, a lot of toothaches. Then there were a couple of lectures, if you're lucky, maybe one lecture on neuropathic pain and almost no lectures or maybe half of a lecture or a mention of central pain or nociplastic pain, the, the sorts of pains which occur when there's actually physically nothing there to see. It's no longer appropriate to call these pains somatic some metaphor pain or, you know, pain, you know, like as if the patient's being a hypochondriac and is making these pains up, it's now yeah. understood that there is no direct correlation between nociception, how much a pain should feel, and what the patient is actually feeling. So if a patient on an MRI, patient saying, oh, my jaw's terribly sore, and you look at the MRI and you see no inflammation, it doesn't mean the patient's making it up. Yeah, It just means that pain is classified differently and maybe you... Pain is subjective, not objective. Absolutely. Pain is emotional and it's an experience and it's not physical or to be seen.
0: Yeah, I, I used to teach communication to the med and dent students and I used to throw... It wasn't on the script, but I used to want to throw that in. I think it's a really important thing for dental students to be aware of. If the patient says they're in pain, they're in pain. You believe them. And then you
1: ask, and then you go, why? You don't go, yeah, the first thing you do is you go, yes, you're in pain. Not, no, you're not in pain because I didn't see it. You Believe them. And then you backpedal and figure out why you haven't figured out why they're in pain.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And that may or may not feed into that biopsychosocial model that we talked about as well where, where does that come into play particularly with these pains that we don't that we can't see is that a relevant thing to be thinking about so as a standard of care in in the practice
1: and at the university and also in hospital practice in our medicine the biopsychosocial models apply to everybody okay yeah um, the reason being even in an acute pain scenario if a patient has a, a classic Dental pain, classic pulpitis, the psychosocial aspect still defines how much pain the patient feels. Okay. The culture of the patient, um, you know, the social aspects, maybe the patient's homeless, very significant. Maybe the patient's unemployed, maybe the patient hasn't slept for two days, often the case with a toothache. Yeah. Very critical here. So I think as a blanket rule, you should ask. And you should apply the biopsychosocial model to all patients, regardless of whether it's no, nociceptive pain, neuropathic or nociplastic pain. Then you're less likely to be caught out and you don't run into the this whole argument. Maybe my pain isn't real. Are you trying to imply that I don't really have pain and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I'm fully on board with that. Again, it's something we used to talk about in teaching the old Socrates, you know, the history taking of pain and we used to add I onto the end, which is impact. So you always ask the patient the impact of the pain, because it could be, well, In typically in in general practice, you have one patient rings up with the tiny chip on their lower incisor. That is in all objective terms, and not really a dental emergency, but the impact on them might be huge if they're going to do an interview or, on, or they're on TV or they're a model or something or other or they're getting married the next day you know so the asking the impact on their life which is I suppose that psychosocial question is crucial particularly for real for this really strong pains and that that can impact people's lives so badly
1: you know, to follow on, on that if I may mm. I, I often tell patients this um, this version of nociceptive pain had a, sorry, plastic pain. I had a patient that came in and said, my gum right at the back has been extremely sore, extremely sore, terrible pain, 10 out of 10 pain. And typically, as this patient did, said, and I have a very high pain threshold. You know, often thrown in saying, you know, so I'm not as not your typical patient. I've got extra high pain threshold and I'm still suffering a lot. So now what I heard is a cry for help. So I turned around and said, okay, this is obviously very severe. Can I ask you, when did this pain begin? And the patient goes on and says, "I, I was at a funeral and the pain came on. Okay, so there was a death in the family. And I said, so how would you describe the pain? They said, the pain was exactly like what I had when I had my wisdom teeth in the area, and I think I've got another wisdom tooth. So I go on and ask, okay, so tell me about this wisdom tooth. Oh, and it goes on and tells me a 10-year history where it was quite a traumatic surgical extraction, dry socket, eventually this wisdom tooth heals up. Now, 10 years on, patients at a funeral, very upsetting because a close family member, distressed, etc. And the patient says, I feel like that wisdom tooth is hurting again. And the question the patient had for me was, now, I think it's that wisdom tooth. I go to my dentist. The dentist says, no way. I had my wisdom tooth taken out. Anyway, we had an x-ray in case there was another wisdom tooth there, mm-hmm. clutching a straws now. Nothing to see. Virgin tooth on the seven. Where's this from? And so I go on and explain that yes, there's actually nothing to see. The dentist is right, there's nothing to see. However, the nerves there are firing. The nerves are firing. And but how? There's no tooth. In, and then I, I use the analogy, you know those you know, individuals who might have been in a factory accident or lost the limit war, but they swear they can still feel it. And the patient says, but that's usually straight after war. I said, well, no, no, not really. Straight after war, you have pains everywhere and you're recovering. And in fact, they can still fight after losing a limb straight after, in yeah. the middle of it all, because you have some protective inhibitory mechanisms that protect you from pain. But I said, this is pain that occurs many months. In your case, after many years, the memory of that pain experience for that terrible traumatic extraction and the dry socket have now all sort of flooded back because you're going through a very emotionally challenging time. So in this case, I gave the patient pregabalin, and pregabalin, an anti-neuropathic medication, um, strictly speaking, anti seizure like medication, anti-epileptic-like medication, which is quite a potent angiolytic. And the patient comes back and says, wow, I am so much better. Now, okay, great. Now, the challenge here is, is it time? Is the, the, you know, the, the grieving process is over and the patient's better? Is yeah. it medication? I guess it doesn't matter what it was. Um, eventually the patient settled and gotten better. And just before the patient left says, I'm so glad you fixed me. They said, whoa, 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 no, no hang on. I haven't fixed you. What I've done is I've quite now this misfiring, the misfiring nerves in the area, and I'm not sure when it'll misfire again so the patient says, Can you take a guess when it might happen again? I said, I really don't know. So give me some examples of when it will happen again. I said, Well, right. it could happen when you're getting married. <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> okay. that's, that's a stressful event. It could happen um, when you're at your next job interview. It can happen with this big promotion that you've been looking forward to. It could happen when you're building this mansion of a house that you're excited about. That's an essentially the next stressful event, and it could be around the corner. So, no, I haven't fixed you. I'm glad you're better. I hope I never have to see you again. Yeah, or it may never happen again. Yeah, but, um, yes, um, <laughs> I haven't fixed you, please.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's an important caveat to add, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, you talk a little bit about i've heard you speak as well and i know some research you're doing that talks to this a bit as well about the ace score the adverse childhood experience yes and can you speak i know you haven't finished your research on this can you speak a little bit about your thoughts or your your hypothesis on this yes yeah very yeah very good this
1: is um interesting so Myself, Dr. Miriam Jesri, who's um, head of training and um, head of oral medicine at the University of Western Australia, have gotten together and have decided that we want to do an A study of our orofacial pain patients at the Oral Health Centre. Now, the reason why we want to do this study is I've been at the Oral Health Centre of Western Australia since 2008, ramped it up in 2009, and and I see a group of patients that unfortunately don't get better. Okay, I'm gonna say it and it's in a podcast, so I can't back up now, back out of this. You know, it's amazing how many colleagues talk about their successes. And that's the that's easy. We can all talk about how beautiful amalgam we did or composite all those veneers and and post them on Instagram, etc. So I've got a group of patients in this particular clinic who just don't get better. Now When you see patients long enough, you know, you start seeing the same patient over and over and over again, you get to know them. And then we started seeing patterns. All these patients, or many of them, almost all of them, had a common theme that all had trauma, okay, trauma, emotional trauma. Um, These are patients who who were born in countries that were war-torn or had lived through wars who had been physically or sexually abused, grew up on the streets, not educated, low socioeconomic status, that was a theme. And it got me thinking, you know what, what was interesting is their history. And, you know, it's in Hollywood you hear stories of people being, we were watching Pursuit of Happiness with, our, with the kids and the kids, you know, and obviously it's a happy ending where the, the guy in the movie ends up being a very successful stockbroker. But the truth is most people who have terrible childhoods and terrible adverse um experiences and events don't have these sorts of happy endings. And no. what's actually happened is whatever's happened to them in the childhood has carried on in the adulthood. So they continue to have the same challenges. And th- these are these are anecdotal observations, you know, abusive father gets out of that situation moves in with an abusive boyfriend, gets out of that situation, marries an abusive husband, gets out of the situation, gets into a de facto relationship with another abusive partner. And like yeah. how? How did this happen, you know? And and what I tell my patients and I tell my students this as well, you can't heal in an unhappy environment, okay? So, so you know, the body can only heal, the mind can only heal when you, you're surrounded by by a supportive, happy environment. So we started... Yeah, saying,
0: or when, when all your resources are being used up in self-protection, how, how, how do you devote resources to healing and getting better? Absolutely, and interesting, you use the
1: word resources. The resources are almost depleted. Talking to a patient about, you know, you're constantly fatigued, I think you should exercise. And the patient comes back to me the next time and says, guess what, I've started exercising and the patient goes on and says, I have now gotten out of bed earlier, and I'm now walking to my post box at the front. Okay. Uh, and, and I didn't, you know, this, this is many years ago, and I, I didn't know how to sort of understand that. I sort of think, wow, that's not a lot was what went through my head. But that was 30 meters more than ever yeah that's climbing mount everest for that person yeah they got out of bed before noon and they started moving etc and I'll never forget the innocence at which she said it to me because she, she was so proud that she was able to do this. I, I got emotional thinking about it, you know, thinking, oh, wow, you know, and, you know, all the, you know, and so I was chuckling that, you know, I really meant get out there, like go to a park yeah. and <laughs> exercise and you know, do a couple of chin-ups perhaps. But, you know, for them, getting out was so significant that, it, you know, sort of was a humbling moment again, you know, and I said, like, wow, and that's what has driven this research.
0: Okay, and you're still in, obviously not finished, but certainly uh, it'd be very interesting to see what comes of it.
1: Yes, um, it's, it's interesting. Um, um, and if you ever have a moment um, to your listeners, um, it's worth downloading the ACE questionnaire and filling it out. What's interesting is we'd all, you know, listen, we can talk about perfect childhoods out there, and, um, you know, you might have a score, a one or a couple events, and The the number is four. If you got more than four, life can, you know, it it really does predict your future almost, you know. Yeah, I, I remember
0: the stats you put up, things like incarceration, drug dependence, alcohol, all those things are very closely correlated to the ACE score. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So, so, yeah, very good point. And so so
1: where are we at with this project? Um, because of COVID, we've had to stop seeing patients face-to-face um, routinely. Yeah. And so we're now going to an online type study where they'll be still doing the um, the questionnaires, except it'll be done online, and then we'll match it up with their diagnosis. I'm confident we'll have data by the end of this year. And okay. To- to perhaps present at a meeting i think it's a it's an important aspect that's often missed
0: can we talk about one more thing that's very relevant for gdps is the whole notion of parafunction and treatment so uh, thinking grinding and the man- the manifestations of grinding cracked teeth sore joints muscles first of all the patient that says i don't grind <laughs> when you ask them about it, it must be. It must be. I'd say if you had a dollar for everyone that uh, says that to you, uh, certainly for us, you know, you see, you see the teeth, the canines, the the wear facets, a couple of cracked teeth. You see everything, and um, they're telling you they don't grind. In terms of communication, what, what, how do you manage that?
1: So, so firstly, I reassure the patient that we all clench and grind at some point. Um, I think that's an important thing to normalise it. Yeah. So, so I say, well, you know, we all have this behavior at some point. I explained to the patient that even if you were to have a sleep study where we're watching you, you only grind and clench for seconds to a few minutes and you're not grinding and clenching for, two, for eight hours. And so for someone to observe grinding and clenching, it's really difficult. I explained to them that, um, You know, even if a partner was to sit up and watch, they couldn't pick up on clenching. And when you grind, you can grind quietly. Um, That's why when they do a sleep study, they not only have EMG leads on the masseter muscles, they also have an audio-visual recording. So when the EMG leads are firing, the um, sleep technician can actually physically look and see whether you're actually clenching, grinding your teeth so they can classify the bruxism. So i go gone and explained that we all grind and clench, often on over the years, and um, to, to suggest you don't will be difficult. I said, perhaps you don't grind, maybe you clench, but most of us do a lot more clenching, a lot of mixed grinding and clenching, and very little grinding.
0: Yeah, so how how to explain to patients then the, the consequences of that and give them a degree of accountability for the problem, which is if essentially theirs but they're coming into us with the cracked teeth that have to be extracted or so you know the the sad thing is that the root canal that they spend fifteen hundred dollars on you tell them to have a crown and they come back a year later with a big split down the middle because they've cracked it in half and i suppose it's stressing to them the importance of ownership and them managing it and here are the options and take it or leave it yeah so so this comes down to communication again isn't it um mm.
1: um i think understanding the consequence is critical here. The number of patients obviously I have the luxury of being a third party where say a GDP has sent the patient to me and I'm assessing the patient and clearly they're bruxing. the referral said they're bruxing. I'm telling them, listen you're chipping these teeth. You fractured a tooth last weekend. If you think you're not bruxing, then, then there must be another. Uh, maybe it's a bruxism. Maybe it's sleep, et cetera. And eventually, it's such a frustrating back and forth. I tell them, you know what? Even if your dentist is wrong and you're not bruxing now, I think, for example, if a splint was being offered as a treatment plan, I think financially, you're better off getting the splint now. I said, this bruxism is going to cost you a lot of money in a few years' time. You know, I said, you can yeah. probably get three splints for the cost of that root canal, go and get the splint, Yeah. you know, yeah. and then they sort of go, whoa, and I said, yes, so go, but how would I know I'm grinding? I said, well, the beauty about wearing the splint will mark and then it'll just cut out this discussion totally, yeah. and if you're clenching, we'll have these little spots there, if you're grinding, we'll see these little lines and we'll know very, very quickly if you, you are, or you're not, but to ignore it would be taking a risk, and I think you shouldn't take that risk because if you were to fracture another tooth, it's another couple of thousand dollars because you need that tooth crown now. And then yeah. they sort of go, "All right, all right, I get it, I get it." Because when you sort of um, try and convince them, um, and all all doors are shut, I think it's their failure to understand the consequence.
0: Okay, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, uh, I think we try and convince them of the biomedical problem. We can look in and see the facet and the wear markings that obviously they probably can't see, but it's a really interesting way of turning it on its head, uh, talking about the consequences if they, if they don't buy into the, the biomedical explanation.
1: Yes. Oh, you see, it's like heart disease, right? I mean, you tell a patient you could have a heart attack and die, they go, okay, that's pretty abstract. If you tell your, the patient you could have a heart attack and never see your grandchild again.
0: Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, you know, okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's a, a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And then if we talk, if we get the patient across the line that there is an issue and they're going to have a splint, there's a whole world of controversy out there around splints. Now, I'm not talking about splints for treating TMD or, you know, the more complicated repositioning and all of that. I'm talking about, standard flat plane splints versus the old what I think they used to be called NTIs or SCI sleep clench inhibitors what are your thoughts on first of all the flat plane full coverage versus the anterior for bruxism very good question firstly
1: let's define what splints do for bruxism splints do not decrease intensity or frequency of bruxism okay so. or
0: reduce muscle activity or anything like that
1: Yep. Um, so so there, there's some studies that perhaps when you first fabricate and fit a splint in for a few first few days, there might be some short term decrease activity. And then it's back to full throttle head, you know. OK. And, and So
0: they're essentially a protective barrier.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And a piece of acrylic. There's talon and clear splint. and, and Yeah. It, material and now nylon splints are coming to the front line of treatment because it's less likely to fracture etc now so they're essentially there to protect your teeth from wear now if you use any splint or even if you use a um, a nti or whatever name you want to give a partial splint ultimately you need to think okay the NTI, the full coverage flat plane, full coverage Michigan stabilization splint. Essentially, they're all protecting the teeth. However, which is the one that's least likely to cause side effects or adverse effects? I can tell you the the splint that's studied the most um, to date, the one with the most number of scientific studies out there, is the flat plane stabilization splint. Okay, it's your yeah. safest. Bet. It's the safest out there. I'm not suggesting that flat plane splints are completely free of adverse and side effects. For example, if someone has obstructive sleep apnea and you were to put in a MEG's restabilization splint, flat plane, and it's thick enough, you can aggravate the underlying sleep disorder breathing. So you'd want to ask
0: questions. That's Um, something I was going to ask you. Yep. Okay. You've you've addressed that. Yep.
1: And for example, I have seen patients' um, jaws shift. Um, as a result of using a flat plane splint and suddenly the occlusion changed. It's very, very rare, but obviously I'm in the, in the business of rare things and, and I see this happen. Yes. However, if you go and use an anti splint where the chances of a posterior, of posterior teeth erupting, loading the anterior teeth, increases significantly because it's a partial splint, I think for bruxism it's probably unnecessary. So I, I think if you put on your hat that you're merely there to protect teeth, and choose the best design, it's hard to co-pass a flat plane splint.
0: Look, I, I'm with you on that. For Obviously, without the, the knowledge that you have about the different types of splints, it just makes common sense to me that, that that's what's going to work with the least amount of potential side effects. Yes. The, the only issue I suppose we have with the full Flat plane splint is the adaptation, and the temptation is to make these little minimal ones that patients can adapt to and get used to better, particularly in in those reluctant patients. But I don't grind type patients. Absolutely. So, so can I can I
1: go on to say that then that I wouldn't say this is a uh, it's not a rule that you have to absolutely use a stabilization splint for absolutely everybody. but patients struggling to adapt, I have cut off the molars off a splint and, you know, just the molar coverage. And I've warned the patients, I'm really sorry, this is not a standard splint. Unfortunately, when I, we, you know, you're struggling to adapt to the splint, you're constantly gagging. And we've all seen yeah. those patients and you can't adapt to the splint. So I'm going to take off the the, the, the the back portion of your splint up to your premolars. Now, what this means is it's smaller. So there's a slightly increased risk of um, eruption of teeth. Now, I've been in situations where patients have insisted they only want the coverage of the front teeth. And I warn them, there's a right, there's a real risk you could swallow this and you know also aspirate it. So I'd be very, very careful with using this splint. And so ultimately, it is back information and
0: consent. Yeah okay and you've touched on the OSA which is obviously the other big risk of a maxillary full flat plane splint so we should be screening everybody for OSA before we provide.
1: Yes Um, so so as part of treating someone for bruxism you want to rule out risk factors for bruxism. Some common risk factors that I'm sure many of the um, listeners are aware of, um, alcohol increases the risk of bruxism and Cigarette use and drugs, things like you know party drugs, association with epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, um, um, and certain antidepressants, and so the list goes on. Some sleep disorders. So, like anything else, what I'd encourage you to do is to check, look at their medical history, ask the appropriate questions, and make sure you've you've ruled out what, what, a secondary, underlying cause for the abruxism. A classic example is if you truly believe, and there's clearly evidence that the patient has underlying obstructive sleep apnea, and you want to protect your teeth from wear, the patient may well benefit from a mandible advancement device that treats both their sleep apnea yeah. and their, their, their teeth wear, protect them from grinding your teeth. So yeah, I think yeah, the, ultimately you have to think about risk factors and be a little bit more
0: fluid with it. Yeah. Okay. That all makes a lot of sense. Are there any resources such as books, websites, podcasts that you would recommend in this area? Obviously, you can do a bit of self-promotion on your own own recently released textbook, which is thoroughly comprehensive. Um, Uh, Anything else that you've come across? You mentioned the DCTMD as well, that are a really good resource for GDPs, either in communication or, or in these controversial areas of TMD, parafunction, etc. I haven't gone into my podcast, so I'm sure there are a few
1: TMD-type podcasts out there. Perhaps you might be better at answering those. There, there, are,
0: there are a few. Yeah. yeah.
1: What I can suggest, and there, there are some excellent textbooks out there on TMD and orofacial pain and oral medicine. You can't go past Oakerson's, um textbook on Bell's orofacial pain and temporal mandible disorders and occlusion. There's very little okay because he's moved away from that and, and those two textbooks are excellent the american academy of Orofacial pain has a guideline which is also excellent if you like to know the evidence of that regards to facial pain with regards to oral medicine as a whole where you want um you know facial pain and mucosal disease and bony pathology etc i think contemporary oral medicine is a good textbook the one that i was involved in and i, I yep. must that, um, so the, the listeners are aware, I, I don't get attract royalties from any purchases. So please don't feel obliged to to buy a book for my sake. It was more a labor of love and and an academic exercise. There's also Neville Dam's textbook on oral maxillofacial pathology. Um, that's an excellent textbook. And Christian Scully from the UK, the late Christian Scully. Oh, yeah textbook he's there are multiple textbooks that's one called oral and maxillofacial medicine which is almost like a cheat guide it's almost proving to be timeless it's it's excellent um and i recommend that now those who don't like reading and rather watch videos etc um amanda Poon nguyen who i work with here in, in my private practice as well as um the dental school does yeah she's been a guest on this podcast as well so Oh, fantastic! Um, she yeah. she 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 does excellent short videos um, that, and she's got um, this thing called Spoonful of Oral Medicine. So she does these little little videos on um, oral medicine that you can bite size, bite sized really. And I'd highly recommend that if you're not interested in reading yeah. textbooks, although my textbook can cure insomnia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah so, you more a more visual person maybe go down the amanda's
0: um video. yeah um, amanda's very much geared for the social media generation so uh, i see her on facebook i don't have instagram or twitter or any of that stuff but she certainly is i can recommend from what i see but there's probably a lot more going on that i actually see because i don't engage with that other stuff but yes i endorse that so we'll wind it up and thank you very much for your time. I'm very, very grateful. It's been, we've been a while trying to tee this up and it's been a really excellent episode. Lots of tips, lots of knowledge. I really like your perspective on a lot of things from, from having heard, heard you talk. I knew you'd be a great guest in terms of calling things as they are. And that's really valuable in our profession and really appreciated. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate the invitation. And um, this was fun. Yeah, it is. I told you it would be fun. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks. You enjoy your homeschooling and you have a pleasant afternoon. Yeah.
0: Again, I would like to express thanks to Ramesh for giving up valuable time to come and speak on the podcast. I hope this has provided some clarity and also. Given us an idea on where the limits of our practice as GDPs might be. As always, please rate the show on your streaming platform or leave a review. And I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Communicating Health Podcast.